All right, we're in Ezekiel, and we are in chapter 17, and our desire is to get through chapter 17 tonight. We're in a kind of a portion of, of Ezekiel where he's telling these long narratives, and so uh, we don't need to stop and look at everything verse by verse. The uh, title of our study tonight is The Eagles Have Landed, and you'll see why. The eagle actually is a very popular bird when it comes to national symbols. I, I, I'm sure most of you know this. It's been or is being used by the following nations. Albania, Austria, Egypt, Germany, Mexico, Nigeria, Poland, Ghana, Russia, Serbia, Armenia, the Czech Republic, Moldova, the Philippines, and Romania. I, I gave up after that. In previous history, the eagle was used by the Roman Empire, by Napoleon, by the Persians, and by the Babylonians. We should have listened to Ben Franklin. How many of you know what Ben Franklin suggested, right? National bird, the turkey, which is a bold and proud bird, not a scavenger. Anyway, the turkey. Uh, could have been our national bird, but we chose the eagle like every other nation. Uh, but anyway, not to put anything down, but back into our text. The eagle represents two ancient nations in our text, first Babylon, then Egypt. So we're going to see two eagles tonight. Now, we're at a point in Ezekiel where I thought a little review might be helpful for us. Historical review, that is. In 605 B.C., the Babylonian armies besieged Jerusalem and removed the temple treasures and many of the young men of royal and noble birth. Daniel and his friends were among the young men who were taken as captives to Babylon. In 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar's army again invaded Judah because of a broken covenant and more prisoners were taken away to Babylon. The prophet Ezekiel was included in this group. With the rest of those captives, Ezekiel was settled by the river Kabar in Babylon. While Jer uh, Jeremiah continued to prophesy in Jerusalem, Ezekiel prophesied as a captive in Babylon. Both prophets continued to warn the people that the worst was yet to come for Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah because of their blatant sin uh, of idolatry and forsaking God. Then the final phase of the fall of Judah came in 587-586 B.C. when the defenses of Jerusalem were breached after a siege that lasted more than a year. The temple was destroyed, the city was devastated, and most of the Jews who were not killed were taken away as captives to Babylon. In chapters 15, 16, and 17 of Ezekiel, the prophet gave three parables to the captive in Babylon to illustrate God's dealings with the nation of Judah. The final siege hadn't happened yet, and so he was telling them what was going to happen. They still had hope uh, that Jerusalem would stand. In chapter 15, we found the parable of the fruitless vine. Israel had failed to bear fruit for the Lord, and so it was going to be uprooted. Chapter 16, we saw the parable of the adulterous wife. Jerusalem, as the capital and leader of the nation, had committed spiritual adultery with the surrounding nations and their gods. Now in chapter 17, Ezekiel gives us the parable of two eagles. The two eagles represent, as I said, Babylon and Egypt. The parable portrays the political dealings of the last two kings of Judah with these two powerful empires. And so in verse 1, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, pose a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Now it's called here both a parable and a riddle. It's a riddle-like parable because in a normal parable, the subjects are people and their everyday activities. Jesus told the parable of the sower. He was probably out uh, walking around, 
teaching his disciples and off in the distance and probably in many different directions there were farmers sowing their field. And so he said, I want to tell you the parable of the sower. A man sowed his field and here's what happened. And so that's a normal parable. This one is going to feature animals and plants which represent nations. And so it's a different type of parable and that's why it's called a riddle. Uh, it's not a riddle in the classic sense, but it's a more difficult parable to understand at first because uh, it, it uses sort of a fanciful uh, language. And so in verse 3, and say, Thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with large wings and long pinions, full of feathers of various colors, came to Lebanon and took from the cedar the highest branch. He cropped off its topmost young twig and carried it to a land of trade. He set it in a city of merchants. And then he took some of the seed of the land and planted it in a fertile field. He planted it by abundant waters and set it like a willow tree. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. Its branches turned toward him, but its roots were under it. So it became a vine, brought forth branches, and put forth shoots. But there was another great eagle with large wings and many feathers. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him, stretched its branches toward him, from the garden terrace where it had been planted, that he might water it. It was planted in good soil by many waters to bring forth branches, bear fruit, and become a majestic vine. Say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots, cut off its fruit, and leave it to wither? All of its spring leaves will wither, and no great power or many people will be needed to pluck it up by its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind touches it? It will wither in the garden terrace where it grew. Now, the major details are going to be interpreted for us as we go on. So let me just make a few observations so we know what we're talking about. As I said, the two eagles are Babylon and Egypt respectfully, uh, respectively. We know this because of future history and the dealings and how things fell out. Israel is referred to here as Lebanon because her palaces and her temple were constructed, as you recall, from the cedars of Lebanon. King Jehoiachin of Judah is going to be the top of the cedar tree that was taken captive by the first great eagle, Babylon. After removing Jehoiachin, King Nebuchadnezzar took Zedekiah from the royal line of Judah, set him up as a puppet king in Jerusalem. In the parable, Zedekiah is the royal seed of the land that is planted in fertile soil. The vine represents the Jews of Judah who were not taken captive in the second phase of the Babylonian conquest, but remained in the land under this puppet king, the governor, Zedekiah. At first, the vine turned towards the eagle of Babylon and was subject to Nebuchadnezzar. And so he's telling this fanciful parable... Again, remember, it's in a series of, of parables and illustrations to show that there is no longer any hope that Jerusalem will stand against Babylon, that all hope has been lost. And this is going to be the most political of the parables, or, or really the only one that's political. And it's going to give the insight as to the actual politics of why uh, the Lord finally allowed the nation to fall. Now, the second great eagle appeared on the scene and the vine turned towards him. Zedekiah turned towards Egypt, historically, hoping that an Egyptian alliance would help Judah gain her freedom from Babylonian tyranny. And so, uh, the Babylonian Empire, just a monster. I mean, they, they were the world power at that time. 
They were the nuclear power at that time. Uh, other nations could challenge them, but not successfully. Uh, and so they had, you know, overrun Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem was subject to them. Uh, but Zedekiah, who had been set up after Jehoiachin had been removed, uh, he had ideas that they could break off the yoke of Babylon and he was going to turn towards Egypt for help. The idea in those days was maybe if, you know, if we ally with Egypt and then Egypt attacks Babylon, Babylon won't have time to besiege our city. They'll call their armies back and uh, we'll be free to do our own thing. So we pick up in verse 11. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Say now to the rebellious house, don't you know what these things mean? Tell them, indeed, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and took its king and princes and led them with him to Babylon. And he took the king's offspring, made a covenant with him, and put him under oath. He also took away the mighty uh, of the land, that the kingdom might be brought low and not lifted up, but that by keeping his covenant it might stand. <clears throat> but he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt, that they might give him horses and many people. Will he prosper? Will he who does such things escape? Can he break a covenant and still be delivered? As I live, says the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells who made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke, with him in the midst of Babylon he shall die. Nor will Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company do anything in the war when they heap up a siege mound and build a wall to cut off many persons. Since he despised the oath by breaking the covenant and in fact gave his hand and still did all these things, he shall not escape. Now again, realize that when Ezekiel wrote this, or when this was given to Ezekiel, and he was telling the people initially, part of this had already taken place. King Jehoiachin was already a captive in Babylon, and Zedekiah was the puppet king in Jerusalem. The second part of the parable was yet to be fulfilled. So the second part actually is a prophecy to the people there uh, in Babylon. Zedekiah's political dealings in Egypt would fail and Nebuchadnezzar would return in anger and deliver the final blow to Jerusalem and Judah. Now notice something more. There seems to be an emphasis on the covenant Zedekiah made with Nebuchadnezzar. The word covenant is used at least five times, if I count correctly, and the word oath three times. But at any rate, in that section, uh, it speaks of his oath repeatedly and the covenant that he made. Now, you and I immediately, or I, I, I shouldn't put you in this, I immediately look at this and think, well, it's a light thing for Zedekiah to break a covenant with this foreign tyrant. I mean, after all, what, what choice did he have? They, they came, they conquered Jerusalem, uh, and he makes this agreement with him. He kind of goes along with him. Uh, and, and so now, if he has a chance to make a side deal with Egypt and to break his covenant, uh, what's the big deal? You can tell I was amoral before I got saved. Nothing, nothing really mattered to me. What's, as long as I didn't go to jail, I didn't see any problem with almost anything. And so, but the problem here is, is that God considered this an extremely serious matter. And we're going to see a little bit why in verse 19. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, As I live, surely my oath which he despised and my covenant which he broke, I will recompense on his own head. Now, it's true, as we said, Zedekiah had been set up by Nebuchadnezzar, but it was God's desire for him to remain subservient to Babylon. Read the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah constantly urged Zedekiah 
to avoid making an alliance with Egypt. He warned him not to do it. If Zedekiah had kept the agreement with Babylon, the kingdom of Judah would have continued to prosper as a tributary kingdom to Babylon. There wouldn't have been this final siege and this final destruction. God called Zedekiah's agreement with Nebuchadnezzar my oath and my covenant. And so, in other words, when Zedekiah made that covenant and gave his oath, God said, well, you're not the proper king, but you are a Jew and you are governing my people and you represent me and you've made a covenant uh, in my name. And Zedekiah undoubtedly used the name of the Lord in his oath and he probably even offered a sacrifice to the Lord when making the covenant because that's how you did things in those days. At the very least, Zedekiah misrepresented God to the Babylonians as someone not trustworthy, unfaithful, who would break a covenant. That's kind of serious on that level, don't you think? Can you, from our New Testament perspective and all that we know, could we ever conceive of God breaking a covenant that he had made? I hope not. Otherwise, we might as well just close our Bibles right now and leave because there, you know, if God is not faithful, uh, the same yesterday, today, and forever, then we have real problems. And so God said, essentially, he said, when Zedekiah made that covenant, that was my covenant. He swore on me, by me, by my name, made sacrifices, and so this is a binding covenant. And I told him through Jeremiah... Remain subservient to Babylon. This is your punishment uh, for various things. Don't go after Egypt, but Zedekiah wouldn't listen. And so even in captivity, the Jews represented the Lord. They were still God's witness to the nations. We represent the Lord. We're called living epistles, living letters in the New Testament. It's been said that we're the only Bible some people will ever read. Yes, Israel was in a difficult position, a terrible position and subject to uh, submission to Babylon. And so God says, well, I want you to represent what a subject people are like. What, what does it mean to be a subject people and still represent me and still share my love and my mercy and my grace with your captors? Uh, and so uh, it's, it's very fascinating. It's very interesting how important this idea of a covenant is with the Lord. And then as we recognize that we represent the Lord, and many times our situation is not going to be the best, is it? I mean, come on, really. I mean, sometimes we, you know, somebody can pull us aside and say, hey, you don't really have it that bad. And, and then we think, well, that's true. Every, you know, I, relatively speaking, it's not that bad. I'm having a problem here. I'm having a problem there. You know, it's not overwhelming. I just don't like the situation I'm in. Uh, you know, but many times, as we told you, God says, no, I, I put you there. Unless you're absolutely out of my will in some place where you're not supposed to be, I've put you there, I've sown you there, I've sent you there, uh, and so represent me. What did I do when men reviled me? What did I do when men persecuted me? What did I do when men spit on me? When they falsely accused me? Do that. I've already done it. I did it on the cross, I did it in my ministry, and I've given you the Holy Spirit to help you do it. So let's, let's do this together. Let's accomplish this together. Uh, this is the season that you're in, we might say. That's a, a, an analogy a lot of people like to use. Some people think they live in Narnia, where it's always winter and never Christmas. I mean, you know, that's kind of how they feel. It's like, well, when is it going to be springtime for me? 
And so, but, you know, God's put you somewhere and he says, let's do this together. Let's walk together. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. If it's heavy, then God isn't the one helping you bear it, is he? Or you're chafing against it. And so, you know, this is a very important kind of a situation to the Lord. And so in verse 20, I will spread my net over him and he shall be taken in my snare. I'll bring him to Babylon and try him there for the treason which he committed against me. All his fugitives with all his troops shall fall by the sword and those who remain shall be scattered to every wind and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, this is interesting to me because as far as the Lord was concerned, he was in charge. He, not Nebuchadnezzar, was the one who was going to capture and convict Zedekiah. Talk about the sovereignty of God. God, I mean, historically, Babylon came, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar came, they took Zedekiah away, but God here says, no, I'm actually, I'm the one that's doing that. Uh, because I work through human history, Nebuchadnezzar is my agent representing me. He's the long arm of the law, you might say. And he may think he's doing it, but go back and, or later on read Daniel and you find out what I'm going to do to Nebuchadnezzar. I love my favorite chapter, in, 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 one of them in the whole Bible, has to be Nebuchadnezzar's conversion in, in the book of Daniel. If you're not familiar with it, it's so fantastic. Nebuchadnezzar, filled with pride, doesn't realize that God is using him, doing all these things, that he's really not that essential. He looks out over Babylon, he considers it his great kingdom, and God strikes him You know, with... Uh, he ends up acting like a beast and living out in the fields for many years. Uh, and, and many think that Daniel actually covered for him. Uh, you know, and, and he comes to faith in, in, in the Lord. And he writes a tract. Uh, in fact, that whole chapter is his testimony and he publishes it all over the Babylonian Empire. And so it's fantastic. And so God, God is in control of these events. Uh, now, here are three lessons we can glean from this riddle parable having come this far. First, things are not always what they seem. In fact, they're almost never what they seem. God is always working behind the scenes using even pagan nations to accomplish His providence in the world. As I've already alluded to, in my world and in your world, He uses even pagan bosses or neighbors. That being the case, we cannot always know exactly what is going on. We must continue to walk by faith, respond biblically, represent the Lord where He's put you. Second, we ought to take all of our words quite seriously. Jesus in Matthew 5.37 said, But let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the devil. Then later James would write in James 5.12, But above all, my brethren, don't swear. He wasn't talking about cussing. He's talking about giving your word. He says, Either by heaven or earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. The simplest understanding of this is that you should only say what you mean and always mean what you say. I say this too, and it's kind of silly when you think about it. I say, well, now, to be honest with you. So I've been lying to you the whole time? You know, and, and uh, now, in our society, we kind of recognize that a little bit. It's like, you know, I said this, I wasn't under oath. Now I'm under oath and it could cost me something. It could be perjury. Now I'm going to tell a different story. What, what about this? What about it? I wasn't under oath. I, I always, I love Lucy and Charlie Brown. When he thinks he's going to kick the football and he signs the, the agreement and she goes, and she still pulls the football out away and, and, and she goes, funny thing about this, it wasn't notarized. 
And it's like, so, you know, it doesn't mean anything. And so, you know, we have the reason that's funny is because we have an idea in our culture that you can lie as long as you can't get in trouble for it. But once you're in court and you hand on the Bible or you're you're guilty of perjury, then that's a different matter. And so the Lord just says, hey, if you're going to say something, say it and let it be true. And James echoes the same thing. J. Vernon McGee commenting on this says, it ought to be as if you were in a courtroom and had taken an oath to tell the truth. All your conversation ought to be like that. And so just say what is true uh, and always say the same thing. Now third, in my difficulties, I must not look to the world for help when God wants to be my help. I sometimes have to recognize that the situation I'm in is God's design for me. First of all, I don't really need help out of it. I need help through it. And that's a very big point. I always think I need help out of my trials. God must not know I'm in it. I fell into it. It was somebody else's trial. There's another Gene Pensiero. In fact, there's too many Gene Pensieros now. They're all over the place. No one knows. Just, it's just like when they call and they say, is Gene there? Which one? And how do we describe the old Gene, young Gene, big Gene, little Gene, Pastor Gene, Assistant Pastor Gene, or the baby? You know, and, so, and so no one knows. You know, and, so, and I think, well, Lord, maybe this is Gino's trial. You know, and, and so you know, I need out of this trial. And so what machinations, what Machiavellian plots can I come up with to get myself out of this trial? And God says, no, I want you to go through this. And so we need to quit looking to the world, uh, looking to Egypt. Uh, and, and as far as Zedekiah, God warned him. He says, don't do this. Egypt is not going to be any help to you. Don't do it. Christians love to borrow methods and messages from the world. When Christian psychology was first really making its appearance on the Christian scene, um, maybe about two decades ago, and, and, and it, it made a big explosion onto the scene, not because of psychologists trying to you know, share it with Christians, but because of Christians wanting to borrow from it to seem more intelligent. One of the leading proponents of Christian psychology, his analogy, which he used for years and I think still uses, is that it's like spoiling the Egyptians. And you think, well, what's he talking about? He's referring back to the Exodus when at the time God delivered the, uh, the Israelis, uh, the, the Jews, out of Egypt, the Egyptians gave them all kinds of riches and jewelry and they spoiled the Egyptians. They took their spoil and they went. And so he says, yeah, that's what it's like. That's what we need to do with secular psychology. We need to spoil the Egyptians and, and take that treasure from Freud and, and Jung and Rogers and B.F. Skinner and Maslow. We need the treasure that those guys have uncovered. The treasure those guys have uncovered is garbage. There's, they haven't uncovered anything. Those, a lot of those guys were in touch with demons and they admit it. They don't say they're demons, they say they're spirits. But they're cra- have you ever read any of that stuff? Those guys are nuts. They hated Christ. They had nothing to do with God. They didn't fall on any principles. The, the idea, you know, I mean, if you're leaving Egypt, you could use some gold. Uh, but if you're 
a Christian, you don't need psychoanalysis, not the way Freud and those guys did it. And so we need to be careful. We love to borrow things from the world, methods and methodologies. And as long as we give them a Christian name, we think, well, okay, that's the same thing. Those guys have discovered what we already have in the Bible, but they have a different name for it. Well, then why do we need it? And so anyway, I don't want to get off too much on that, but you understand. Ezekiel prophesied about what was to occur. And in the final verses, he looked further into the future of Israel past even our own time. So let's read through those. Verse 22, Thus says the Lord God, I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. I will crop off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it and it will bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches they will dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree, dried up the green tree and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. Commentators say this refers to God Himself taking a tender sprig from the highest branches of the cedar, planting it on a high and prominent mountain in Israel. The shoot from the cedar tree is the Lord Himself from the royal line of David. The kingdom of our Lord will be planted on this earth with His capital in the mountain city of Jerusalem. His kingdom will thrive and prosper. It will bear fruit and will become like a splendid, majestic cedar tree. And all the other trees of the world, as it were, the other nations, will be subject to it. All the inhabitants of the earth will find provision and peace under the branches of the mighty, majestic cedar tree in the distant future beyond our own time. God is just as much involved in the processes of history today as He was in the 6th century. He's aligning nations against Israel just as prophesied later in the book of Ezekiel. History will unfold just as it has been pre-written in the Bible. Is that fatalism? No, because along the way Christians are being read as living epistles by men and women and they're being saved. And so uh, there's an interesting discussion right now. I'm, I'm following on my pastor's internet, I call it. It's where a bunch of the Calvary pastors talk to each other. And uh, in light of all the things that are going on in the world today politically, it's like, you know, how do we reconcile being uh, evangelical, dispensational, uh, you know, the Lord is coming with politics and all that. And I don't want to get into all that. We will get into all that, or Jacob will get into all that uh, in his Caltech class coming up. Uh, when we talk about the uh, Christian ethics and what the Christian response is to the world and to government and to politics and all that. Um, but the idea, you know, that we've always had here is that you should uh, dwell or the word occupy until the Lord comes uh, and, and uh, do whatever you can that is biblical to, you know, and, and that is allowed, obviously, in, in your government and your politics and all that. We don't have any problem with that. Uh, but ultimately, I think we need to acknowledge that the only real hope for the world, not just our nation, but the world, is the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, every government has failed. Every government will fail uh, the, in terms of a form of government. The only pure form of government is a theocracy with God ruling. Every other Now, do we have the greatest government in the world? Sure, I think so. I think it's great. I, I don't want to live anywhere else. Do you want to live anywhere else? Go. I, have fun, you know. Go there. 
People come here, they don't, you know, I mean, sure, there's some people who leave here and go different places, but, you know, they don't go to the places where everybody's coming from. I mean, this, you know, I don't ever want to be misunderstood. This is the greatest country in the world, and I thank God for our freedoms, and I think we need to fight for them and all of that. I'm all into all of that, but not at the exclusion of, not to forget that our hope is in the return of Jesus Christ, ultimately. Uh, and it doesn't, it's not a fatalism, it's a, it's a realism. It, because while we're doing all this over here, which is good, the bottom line is, if everyone were saved, we'd have church problems, but we wouldn't have the kind of problems we have in our country today. Because we would have a biblical foundation, we would be able to pray, we would be able to do that. And so what's the, uh, the ultimate goal is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to let men, women, and children know that He came and He died and He rose from the dead and that He's coming again. And if we can do good along the way, we ought to. If we can affect government, we should. If we can vote and we can do all these other things, that's great as long as we don't forget our real mission, the Great Commission, and that is the preaching of the Gospel of Jesus Christ because that's the real hope, that's the ultimate hope. That's uh, what we need to be about. And when I read Ezekiel and I see that God is behind the scenes of these great nations, using them, uh, you know, it reminds me to just be a Daniel. To be, the, to be Daniel in whatever country, in whatever situation I'm in. And Daniel's great. I mean, Daniel, you talk about a guy who got involved in politics. It was Daniel. He was like the vice president of two of the greatest nations of the, uh, you know, of the world. But he never lost focus on Jesus Christ and on the coming of the Lord. In fact, God gave him the greatest revelation of the return of Jesus Christ that he gave to anybody in the Bible, I think. He laid out the whole plan of history for him. And so it's possible to do both. And we want to do both without losing our Christianity. Amen? Amen.